Good evening. I'm so delighted to be here with you this evening. I'm Jared Huffman. I've known Kyle for 20 years. So welcome to the roast of Reverend Kyle Bovis. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, I've known him throughout the last two decades, which means I even knew him during his college years. And I know you're thinking, I bet you have college stories about Kyle. But friends, now is not the time and place for college stories about Kyle. After the service out there, I'll share some Kyle stories with you, and I'd be happy to do it. In seminary, they called Kyle and I Tweedledee and Tweedledum. To this day, I don't know which one I was. We have been friends for a long time. My wife says that I laugh harder with Kyle than any other person on the planet. Kyle even took his seminary finals early so that he could come and be in my wedding, um, serve as a groomsman. So it is entirely my delight to be here, my friend. Uh, if there's anything you can say about Kyle, it's that he's loyal. 20 years of friendship, and I'm not very good at friendship, and I'm certainly not very good at long-distance friendship, but we're still friends because of Kyle's dogged determination, his loyalty. In 2008, Kyle moved down to Woodlands, Texas to take a job here. In 2009, I moved down to Houston, Texas to take a job there. In 2013, I moved from Houston, Texas to Lookout Mountain. And then in 2019, I moved from Lookout Mountain down into Chattanooga. And Kyle is still here. I'm on my third pastoral call, and here he is with you still. And it's just a beautiful picture of how God uses Kyle's long, patient, loving, persevering gifts in your life and in mine. There are very, very few people that I could possibly think of that understands grace and Jesus Christ more than Kyle does. So would you stand with me tonight and let's read God's word together and then I'll pray for us and we'll dive in. This is from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? Let's pray together. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for this night that we can gather and be reminded of your faithfulness. Boy, do we need it. It feels like we're wasting away. It feels like we're losing heart. It feels like we're struck down and abandoned at times. And we're definitely perplexed. Would you, by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who loves us so much, by the majesty of your Son Jesus and his matchless grace, would you move tonight in our hearts? Don't let us stay the same. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A recent book came out a couple of years ago. It remarked on this study that they had done at Yale. 1,200 Yale University students, 1,200 is a direct quote, nearly one quarter of the entire undergraduate body enrolled in a 2018 course on happiness entitled Psychology and the Good Life by Lori Santos. It was the most popular course in the history of the school. This is in 2018. It was so popular, in fact, it was only offered once because of the massive enrollment. A similar course at Harvard in 2006 had drawn 900 students and was touted as the most popular course in the history of that university. Why would so many people, and these are the best of the best, mind you, so many people take a class on how to be happy? I mean, don't we all have our own ways of being happy? Don't we have all our own ways of personal fulfillment? Why would all of these people who should be the best and the brightest take a college course on how to be happy? You know, it pokes at something inside of us. It's from a reading of a pastor. But that pokes inside some of us because we've been at this a while and we still don't know quite how to be happy. Maybe if we gather more resources to ourselves, maybe if we boost our reputation more, more, maybe if we spend the right time with the right people more, then we will be happy. And Paul here beautifully, powerfully challenges us to say to think that happiness that life abundant can only be found in death you cannot be happy in life until you understand the importance of your death that's what he's talking about here that if we're going to be happy if we're going to live full lives it's going to be through our deaths now as i talk for just a few minutes this evening i want you to know that I do have Kyle in mind as I give you these words, these, these sermon. It is an encouragement to him to press on and keep doing what he's doing. This is, in portion, a, past, a text for pastors. But it's also for all of you who follow Jesus. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he's going to talk about Paul's particular ministry, but he's saying we all have these 
treasures in jars of clay. So when you hear Kyle, you can think of yourself as well. First of all, what is a follower of Jesus? Or what, what is a pastor ultimately? It's that they're not important. They're easily broken. That they're unimpressive. But they hold something powerful. Listen again in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpass, all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What he's saying is the jars of clay portion is that we think if you saw a jar of clay, you'd be like, wow, that's really cool. That looks old. I know just in my house where I would put that. But what they would have heard is that that's nothing. They find them everywhere. Archaeologists have to scoot them out of the way to get to the more important things that the jars of clay were nothing. It's like a solo cup. It's like a, just a cup of coffee that the outside doesn't mean anything. But his point is, is that though the outside doesn't mean anything, what it holds is spectacular. So what is a follower of Jesus? What is a pastor ultimately? Is someone who knows that they're unimpressive, that they're a dime a dozen, that they're common but that they hold something glorious in the treasure inside. What you want to see out of Kyle, and friends, what you want to see out of each other is not that he's smart or that you're smart or wealthy or super gifted or super connected. What you want to see out of Kyle, and ultimately, friends, what you want to see out of each other is the glaring awareness of how broken you are how common you are, how unimpressive you are. I heard you sing out loud a few minutes ago when we sang prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. In every church I've ever been in, when that line is sung, the volume goes up, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But what is so sad is when we come into a church and the reason that we're there is because we've said, I believe in a savior of my sin and I know that I need a king over my life. But then when we come into a place, we feel like we need to put all our armor back on. That we need to be shiny. We need to be china instead of solo cups. We need to be smooth. We need to have it together. And I want to remind you that the beauty of the gospel is that it's given to regular people. The beauty of pastoral ministry was the given to regular people. People that are not impressive. Friends, of course you suffer. Of course you struggle. Of course you sin. What if that could be common here? What if it was common in Kyle's life? My application for you here is this. Don't make Kyle be impressive. Don't make Kyle be impressive. Don't make him put on airs and look like he has it together. Don't make him be smooth and savvy. And don't do that to each other either. Be the one place in the week that you can be undone, unimpressive, and very common. Because you need so desperately to remind each other that it's not about the vessel. It's about the contents, the power of the gospel. And we, we flip it. We think, whoa, our sin is so great. Our sin is so great. And the contents of the gospel is too small. He's saying what you're supposed to understand is that the sin, 
the vessel is small, but the gospel is great. We can flip it either way. We can think the clay is too, what's in the clay is not important enough. Kyle and I follow one of our seminary professors named Zach Eswine. He was preaching while we were in seminary and he preached through Ecclesiastes. In seminary, sitting listening to other preachers, is, it's, it's like a talent show. You're wondering how good they are and how good are the people next to you. You're wondering, do I have what it takes to be a pastor? Will I still be a pastor all this many years later? So Zach Eswine is speaking to a room of people who know the gospel but want so desperately to be significant. And he read from Ecclesiastes 2.16, and he said, The wise, like the fool, will not be remembered. All of them will be forgotten. And then he paused and he looked out at all of these young, arrogant seminarians, and he said, No one will remember your name. No one will remember your name. And I know that seems a little dismal, but in honesty, it was life-giving to make our lives about something bigger than our ministry, than our congregation number, than our gift set, and to realize that a hundred years from now, no one will know who Jared Huffman was, or Clay, or Blake, or Kyle, or Brad. No one will know. But it will matter to the little deaths that we took for the sake of our people. Kyle, remember, no one will remember our names. People will remember how we loved them and made them feel. Ultimately, we are common. Eugene Peterson, who is a very famous pastor who's passed, he once said this, You know, I would never pretend to be a plumber or impersonate a butcher. They would find me out in 20 seconds flat. But he said, we can impersonate a pastor without being a pastor. His point is, is that when you have a skill set being a plumber or being a butcher, and you show that skill off by doing your job well, and he said, as a pastor, you could begin to pretend that you're competent that you know what to do next, that you have it all together, that you know how to love people through difficult times. And what he's saying is do not pretend. Part of a pastor's job is to have no idea what he's about to do next. So that's what a Christian is. It's somebody who's common, not special, but carries around in the gospel in Jesus something that is very special and life-giving to be shared with others. But what do we experience? Did you see it in verse 8 and 9? We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What does a pastor experience? What does a Christian experience? Pain. I know that this church has been through pain. I know that this world has been through pain. I know that you as individuals, and I don't know the specifics, but you have been through pain, through suffering. You've been perplexed. You've been confused. You've been persecuted. You've been struck down. 
the way that we find life is through these deaths that reveal who we are and reveal how we depend upon Jesus. A pastor in particular, though he's not more special, as my friend said, he's not more important. He sits with people in their pain, in their deaths, in their perplex, and in their suffering. One of my mentors uses this quote from Wendell Berry. Some of you know Wendell Berry. In a place and time, he describes the cost of being a pastor. And he says this, To the conscience of the young minister, most present of all, was the depth at which the community suffered its mortality, error, pain, and grief. And this is, it describes the pastor. It says this, For Williams Milby had the gift of comforting. He carried with him not by his will, it seemed, but by the purest gift, the very presence of comfort. And yet, even as it was a comfort to others, it could be a bafflement to him and a burden. His calling and respect, according to it, admitted him into the presence of troubles he could not mend. Let me say that one more time for you. His calling and the respect accorded to it admitted him into the presence of troubles he could not mend. That's the hard part about being a pastor is that you know the news, you've heard the diagnosis, you've heard the whisper, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are taught to pray, that we're invited into troubles that we cannot mend, we're discouraged and overwhelmed. What does a pastor or a Christian experience? Hurt. Hurt. Even this text in here, he says, not forsaken. What he's saying in this text, not forsaken, it's the same word. You know it. It's the same word that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you hold the text together, it's as if saying, we, God's people, we pastors won't be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. And lastly, we'll close here. What does a pastor do? A pastor is just a common person Christian is just a common person that holds a very special and powerful thing. And what do we experience as ministers and also as God's people is suffering and difficulty, troubles that we can't mend. And what are we supposed to do? Look with me in 10 through 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be also revealed in our mortal body. And then Paul kind of sums up the last two things he's been saying. Listen, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And he's saying this, explaining what the pastorate is like, but then he's also telling the people, when you die, others get to live. When you lay down your will, and others are brought into the church. When you will suffer so that someone else can heal, and you'll be quiet so that someone else can speak up, when you'll wear yourself out so that someone else can rest, what he's saying is the way to have life, the way to be happy is to die. Die for each other. Listen to each other. Hurt with each other. Kyle, Megan, and your precious children should get most of your death. 
And I know that it's tempting at time to give it away to the masses and to leave so little left at home. Let Megan and kiddos get most of your deaths. See, that's what the celebrity pastor culture doesn't understand. They can't lead us to Christ because we'd never get to see them die. You see Kyle get tired, get frustrated, get overwhelmed, get weary. We need to see him die so that you can be brought life. We need to see each other die so that you can bring each other life. So you let each other die. You let yourselves die for the sake of others. And you let him be a sinner. Not a sinner that delights in his sin, but you let him be a sinner and a failure. He is of no value to you if he starts to think of himself as fine china that is polished up. And you let each other be sinners too. When you recognize your sin and remind yourself of it, you begin to treasure Christ. And how will he treasure Christ if he is not reminded gently by the Holy Spirit and by you that he's still a sinner? Someday Ella and Jude and Sawyer will be asked at college, what was it like to have a pastor dad? What if they said, you know, our dad was far from perfect? But every chance he got, he died for us. And the way that he spoke to us and loved us and cared for us. And what if they said, and my dad died for other people? He loved them and he hurt with them and he, he wounded. He was wounded with them and for them. But ultimately, Kyle can only point you to the one who gives you life. Kyle can't be the one who gives you life itself. If you have ever been driving along on the side of, driving along the highway with children in the car and you drive past a Chick-fil-A sign, the car erupts. It's glory. But you can't pull over to the sign and stop and say, kids, look, the sign. Isn't it great? And then go to McDonald's. You can't do it. Your kids will disown you. The sign of Chick-fil-A is just getting you ready to go to the real thing, which is a mile down the road. And that's what Kyle is supposed to do. What we're supposed to do for each other is be pointers to the cross, pointers to Jesus to say, I can die for you because one greater died for me. Die with each other. The one who was crushed so that we'd never be crushed. The one who was struck down so that we wouldn't be struck down. The one who was abandoned so that you would always have a seat at the table. Let Kyle and let each other be pointers to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is. That when somebody experiences death, someone else is given life. And we should know that by now in watching you. Your son died so that we would live. Your son gave up his rights and privileges so that we would have his. Would you teach this pastor? Would you teach all of us 
that life is found in the deaths we die for others so that we can know and share in the sufferings of our Savior who died that we might live. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.